0: Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads, you get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com Boiler Room. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I wanna thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode.
1: friends I'm back from my vacation anyway I know I feel like I wasn't nearly as excited coming back from like the break but I do feel like there was a difference between the break and my vacation because to be honest like I haven't been on like a like longer than a few days like actual like vacation in like five years so the fact that I was able to get away with my boo thing and just enjoy, even though I have to say the weather wasn't fully cooperative, we really only got like one good beach day. Um, if some of you saw my posts, you know that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we really just made the best of the boardwalk. We went down the shore, for those of you who don't know. Um, we went to a place called Wildwood in New Jersey. For those of you in the area, you you know the popularity, sort of, of You know, the Jersey Shore towns and whatnot. So, that was where we went. Like I said, we had a blast. It was wonderful. But I'm happy to be back. And even though it was only, like, less than a week, I feel like I was away longer. Or at least, that's how my brain feels. (laughs) It feels like I've been away longer from my vacation than I did from the actual, like, month-long break that we had. So, yeah. But I feel great. I feel refreshed. You know we might actually be trying to go down the shore tomorrow depending on how the weather is um I also tried skimboarding while I was down there I've never done it before as a kid I always did boogie boarding and you know was always really comfortable with that but never like actually standing on something while it's moving um so that was interesting um I did fall once And that was probably the only time that I was actually getting on the board properly. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, no, it was really exciting. I'm excited to do it again. And, yeah, it was just really great. Um, Some things that weren't great. um, In Pennsylvania, and I was going to do this for the news update. I meant to, and I just completely spaced and forgot, but I still want to draw attention to it. Um, there is currently an escaped convict in Pennsylvania riding around right now. I don't know if any of you have heard about this story. The man's name, and give me one second to pull it up, Danello Calavacante. And again, we all know how much I suck at names, so that is my best pronunciation of that. Um, he escaped, I believe it was from Chester Prison (laughs) in Pennsylvania recently, And we're now in, like, the ninth day of this. I mean, I'm not in Pennsylvania, but I'm in New Jersey. So, like, I'm fairly close, and my sister's in Pennsylvania. Um, You know, so I worry. Um, Hopefully, though, this will be resolved soon. Um, From what I've seen as far as the news stories, um, you know, the newspapers and stuff, they've been saying that, you know, he's kind of, like, out on his own, doesn't really have many resources, So, and with the fact that, you know, his picture is basically plastered everywhere, everyone knows where he is, um, you know, it seems like he's kind of doing his best that he can, like in Danny Rowling fashion, trying to live out in the wilderness, but obviously um, his resources are dwindling and his access to them is going to be close to impossible. So, hopefully this will be resolved shortly. This next not so great thing that I'm very upset about. Um actually I want to shout out our new intern, because yes, we have interns again, very excited. Um, but one of our new interns, her name is Sarah. She and I, during our meeting this morning that I semi-derailed, we're talking about the Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner divorce that's currently happening. You know, when I first found out the news, I was really hoping that they were rumors. Because I thought, you know, I I really have no stake in their relationship, honestly. I just thought they were a cute couple. And honestly, I don't want to see really anyone who's married unless, you know, it's obvious that they're not right for each other. You know, but even still, like, you know, you don't ever hope for a marriage to go south. You know, you hope that they can beat all the odds and stand the test of time and truly be together forever. But... And that's how I felt about them. So the fact that they are officially filing for divorce, or at least Joe has retained a lawyer and has officially filed. um, You know, obviously I was upset about that. But the main thing that Sarah and I were kind of bonding on was the narrative that's being spun as if Sophie Turner is some sort of bad mother. Like, excuse me, like I know TMZ reported that Joe has had the children for the past couple months because Sophie's in London. She's in the UK, or not London, maybe, but she's in the UK recording Joan right now. So she's working, and as a working actress who, mind you, really hasn't acted in anything since Game of Thrones ended... And since Game of Thrones has ended, she married Joe and had two kids. So, you know, I mean, their oldest is three. Their youngest is over a year. So, you know, I don't like the notion of shitting on her because she's working right now. But also, we don't know their agreement beforehand. You know, they could have had plans to meet up. At certain points, like maybe she was going to fly back. He was going to fly over there. But because of the arguments and whatnot, maybe that didn't happen. Who knows? But also, I think, well, I think there's a couple things that people fail to realize. The first thing I think they fail to realize is that Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas are not a normal couple. They do not have your normal <laughs> nine to five Or even like, you know, even some of the more unconventional types of jobs that most normal everyday Americans have, they don't have that. So the notion that they have sort of like a steady schedule type of thing, you know, can be home as much as they want, you know, that's not in existence for them. Like, Joe Jonas is currently on tour with his brothers right now. And as I said earlier, Sophie's in the UK filming, you know, being an actress and filming and doing her job. And for some of the people who do travel for work, I think Ken sympathize with this. Like, you know, you can't bring your kids with you. Like it's not just that easy, you know? And I think people think because in the acting world it might, or they have this illusion that it's easier. I don't think it's easier. Especially when you have children that young because they need your constant attention. And Honestly, in most cases, especially at that young, mom is number one. You need mom for absolutely everything or you want mom for absolutely everything because up until this point in your life, mom was literally providing you pretty much everything. Now, I'm not trying to hate on dads or diss on dads, you know. I do feel like the narrative is being spun too much that dads aren't doing enough because I really do think that, Fathers, especially in this situation from what I've gathered based off of everything that I've heard, you know, he is a very present dad and there are other dads who are very present as parents. You know, however, though, I also think at this point we don't need to highlight the fact that a father is being a parent, like the narrative is being spun right now. So, you know, because it feels like they're trying to give him a gold star for you know, being with his kids for all of this time while she's overseas working, you know? So uh, it just, it irks my soul so, so much. The other thing I think that people fail to realize, and like I was kind of saying earlier, people who travel for work know this, is that it's just hard to bring your kid, but also it's really not that healthy For a child to be moved around so much. As far as psychologically is concerned. Because the constant moving is a level of instability. And that can sometimes play a role in the psychological development of children. You know. Again remember I really don't have any sort of psychological degree. This is just all what I remember from classes. (laughs) So my knowledge is you know psych 101. So (laughs) according to that you know. Obviously, that's not okay. So I can see why she might not want to have the kids with her because that's traveling from somewhere that isn't their home because their home is technically the U.S. And, you know, even though they're traveling with him, at least they're still in the same country with things that they're still very familiar with. Whereas if they were going to go to the U.K., not that it's that different, but, you know, you have people talking with accents. Obviously, Mommy talks with an accent, but it's just it's a lot of change. And given the, you know, that she's working and she's on a set. And so, you know, they might be on said set where things aren't necessarily reality. You know, I mean, just I can see why if they decided against, which I'm pretty sure they did. And like I said, I think the media is just spinning. This, I think they probably had the children stay with Joe in the U.S. for the best interest of the children as for them to not have to move around so much and to not be around so much in familiarity, basically, is where I was getting (laughs) on with that whole rant. Because, yes, I'm just so irked that they're trying to make it seem like Sophie is a bad mom, and I don't think that's the case. And... You know, just to reiterate what I said earlier, Joe is not babysitting his fucking kids. They are his, like I said, they are his fucking kids. So that's what we call parenting. The other thing Sarah and I talked about was how if the narrative was flipped. So what if, for in fact, Sophie was the one who was with the kids for the few months and Joe was on tour going around, whatever, you know, working. No one would say shit. About the fact that he's working. (laughs) Because, again, she's home. It's just, it's you know, it's just this misogynistic view that's being turned. And now I've seen that, like, Taylor Swift songs are getting called into question. Or at least the ones that they think are written about Joe. Um, We know the one, Mr. Perfectly Fine, is mainly confirmed to be about him. Sophie actually posted about it in her Instagram stories. I think Taylor just redid it recently for, you know, because she's been redoing all of her stuff. And some people are kind of looking at the lyrics to suggest that maybe he is constantly looking out for his image, which it kind of does seem like he is. But at the same time, what pisses me off is that for the entire three years that they've had children, three, four years that they've had children, We have not once seen their picture, but yet the day after their divorce is filed, that Joe files for divorce, you can see him having lunch or breakfast, whatever it was, with his two daughters out and about. Just so happens the paparazzi were there. I don't know. I'm not saying he facilitated anything, but I do find that super sketch. And, you know, some of you might be like, well, Sophie accidentally posted. Yeah, but she also pleaded with people to not share that, like any of the images or the video was that she accidentally posted. I haven't heard Joe going after Page Six or any of these other news outlets for, I mean, uh, they blurred the pictures of the faces of the kids. But still, like, I haven't seen him being so, like, upset or vocal about being upset that the paparazzi were able to capture his children's in pictures. Again, I don't know, but I don't like it and we spent a little too much time on that. Let's get into the news update everyone. So, this first case actually happened over Labor Day this past Monday. Roughly 50,000 teachers in South Korea took a leave of absence and rallied in Seoul to demand better protection of their rights and draw attention to parental harassment, which has been the leading cause of suicide among the teachers in South Korea. (sighs) This comes after an elementary school teacher was found dead of suicide in July. It was stated that this happened shortly after the teacher had expressed anxiety over complaints made by a parent. Now, from what I gathered from this article and some other brief research, it seems that parents would indiscriminately make complaints about child abuse as far as disciplinary actions from teachers were concerned. So, uh, you know, essentially they were just making up things. Or maybe, you know... I don't want to say they weren't, but it seems from what we're going to further discuss a little bit that, you know, these claims, it just seemed like they were just really picky parents who kind of were like, you don't get to pick how you discipline my kid, which to some extent I completely 100% agree with. I, you know, as a, if I was a parent, I shouldn't say as a parent, but if I was a parent, I would obviously not want my child to be abused, right? However, though, this doesn't seem to be the case most of the time. It just seems that it's parents who are just angry from the disciplinary action that their child got. Whether it's because they don't believe that that happened or if, you know, maybe they're trying to get revenge or whatever on a teacher for a grade or whatever, you know. Again, like, that's not verified. That's just what I've gathered from what I've been researching and things like that. It also appeared, though, that teachers could be harassed by the parents via their personal phones. Meaning, not only are they getting harassed during school hours by these parents, but then these parents are also harassing them after the fact. And again, you know, if there's actual abuse being taken place you know, that should be persecuted. But if you're pissed because your you know, your child's teacher put them in line because they misbehaved and you're harassing them to the point of suicide, go fuck yourself. Your child, sorry, is not that fucking important. I promise you. Like, get over yourself and get over your high horse of what, you know, or, you know, Whatever pedestal you've put in your child, like, oh, my God. Ooh, I hate that shit. Anyway, thankfully, President Yoon Suk-yeol, names, people, names. It's my best attempt, okay? Stated that they have ordered officials to listen to teachers and to work harder to protect their rights the education ministry is currently working towards strengthening legal measures and taking steps to protect their teachers' rights. One of the things that they are working on is encouraging teachers not to take call from parent calls, excuse me, from parents on their personal phones. However, no time frame has been given for when their full plan will eventually roll out. Over the past 6 years, In South Korea, approximately 100 public school teachers have committed suicide. 57 of those taught at elementary schools. And as I said, those were pretty much linked to the harassment from parents. Which... (sighs) If you're a parent, I I can have a sort of understanding for your extreme protectiveness of your child however as long as they are not being abused mistreated or you know missed unattended to whatever you know you name it almost you know I I can, I can understand, you know, you want to make sure your child succeeds in school. You want to make sure they do well. You want to make sure that they can be the absolute best that they can be. However, if a teacher is doing nothing to impede on that and you are mad for whatever other reason, go fuck yourself and stop. Maybe think about, What would actually be best for your child? Because honestly, the real world is not going to take your phone calls. Like, let's be honest. Your kid graduates college, gets a job. Your kid complains about how his boss doesn't or yells at them or does this or does that. Not to say that you should be yelled at in the workplace. I'm just throwing that out as a very brief example. You know, but, you know, maybe their child sees something unfair in workforce that they don't like but that you know it just is what it is you know and it's all really just because they're shitty because you as the parent can't let them experience anything hard that's basically all I'm saying you know as parents you should be allowing your children experience difficult shit and sometimes that comes in the form of being disciplined by your teacher long story short that's where that rant was going you know Be nicer to your teachers. They're the ones watching your children while you go out and have adult time. And by adult time, I mean work. Not to say that that's great, but, you know, you all know the alternative of staying home with your children 100% of the time. So, you know, be grateful that, you know, there are teachers out there who care how your child turns out. And, you know, that they don't want them to be a shitty human being, you know. That's just basically the vibe I got from this. But we need to move on. Now, in exciting news, at least for me anyway, Danny Masterson is going to jail, people! Yesterday, the actor got 30 years to life in prison for two counts of rape. If any of you aren't familiar with his case or don't remember... Danny Masterson, who played Hyde on that 70s show, was arrested in 2020 for the rapes of three women spanning between 2001 and 2003. The first trial started in 2022. And sadly, it resulted in a mistrial because of a deadlocked jury. And like I said, this was just for one of the three counts of rape. He was then officially convicted of the other two counts earlier this year. And while I'm glad that he has been convicted, obviously, I do feel horrible for the woman whose case was left in or who was resulted in a deadlock. You know, because I wish she could have just gotten the same justice that the other two women had gotten. And obviously, just because her case ended in a mistrial, that does not mean that Masterson did not rape her and that what she said was not true. It just means that the jury couldn't decide. Now for anyone wondering why maybe these women didn't come forward sooner, because like I said their their rapes took place early in the early 2000s. First of all, it's none of your damn business. Second of all, along with Masterson these women were also Scientologists and according to the Scientology religion, you don't report crimes like this to the police. Instead, You report them to the authorities within Scientology, the higher ups, if you will. So as you can see, you know, based off of where we are now, when these women, because they did, they went forward and they told these authorities within Scientology. And clearly these authorities did nothing. Shocker, you know, and honestly, that's not (laughs) I mean, that's only one of the fucked up things in Scientology and uh, I have a lot of opinions about this I've listened to Leah Remini's podcast that she has with Mike Rinder who was a former higher up who worked very closely with David Miscavige who is Scientology's current leader um yeah I I don't I don't like it um you know maybe I'll do a Patreon episode about it in the future just so you can all Understand why I can't stand this religion so much. Oh my God, I wonder if I become a suppressive person after
0: this.
1: (gasps) To be fair, I might actually like that. That would actually kind of be cool. Anyway. Thankfully, like I said, he's been sentenced from 30 years to life. So most likely he's going to die in prison and that's what that bitch deserves, to be fair. This last story, I wanted to end the news update on, like, a happy slash funny note. And this story I just found to be so adorable. And you can just bet 100% that this story involves an animal. So I initially saw this story on NPR's Instagram. But I did more research through NBC News, which is what you'll see in the sources below. I couldn't find the exact NPR article linked to or related to that post, um, so I went with that. But essentially, officers in Norfolk, Nebraska, responded to a strange call that they had received. Calls had been coming into dispatch on August 31st at around 10.05 a.m. from people claiming that a driver had a cow with them in the passenger seat of their car obviously this is not a proper way to transport animals of that size you know so that's why they had to get involved but at first officers assumed that it would be just you know like a calf you know a baby a baby cow a baby bull an adorable little baby but oh my god were they wrong when police spotted the car, they were in absolute shock to see a fully grown bull sticking out of the passenger side. Now, I have posted the pictures to social media, and if you scroll to the show notes, um, or if you scroll in the show notes to the sources at the bottom for the news update, you will see the NBC link, and there is a video within that um, link. So you can actually watch this happening, but I mean, this like I said, he is massive. This bull, and he has long horns. His name is Howdy Duty, and he's a nine-year-old, two thousand two hundred pound, half longhorn, half Watusi bull. So h- that explains long horns because he's a longhorn. And he has been a regular attraction, howdy doody, at parades and fairs throughout Nebraska. Now, just to give you a quick visual, like I said, I you know either look on social media or scroll through these show notes, look for the video so you can see what I'm talking about. But just to give you an idea of the visual of what is happening here, what the police rolled up to <laughs> when they pulled this man over, who was identified to be a man named Lee meyer or mayor m-e-y-e-r meyer Mayer. sorry my brain's not working right now again vacation brain anyway it's his pet so they pull up they pull this man over and essentially like the entire sorry i just hit the mic with my tooth the entire roof on the passenger side is just completely gone And there are, like, these yellow bars instead of doors. Like, it literally looks like a makeshift barn pen. Just passenger seat sized. Honestly, looking at this picture, like, when you guys see it, you're just going to be like, this looks like a clown car almost. Like, it is just insane that this huge, I mean, like I said, he's 200, or he's 2,200 pounds. Like, he is a huge-ass bull. And he is just, like, chilling passenger side of his best friend's ride trying to holler at me just kidding but millennials out there you know what I'm talking about <laughs> anyway needless to say police were just absolutely shocked so when they asked like why this what like what what was going on and why <laughs> he was driving howdy Duty, he stated that this was something that had been on his mind for years And it wasn't until that he told his granddaughters that he wanted to do this. And then they then in turn doubted him that he decided that he wanted to go through with the necessary car modifications. Apparently, according to him, he has been doing this for a while and hasn't had a problem until his stop on Wednesday. Now, of course, nothing happened. No charges were filed. Police let him off with a warning and just told him to be careful on his way home, you know, to take Howdy Duty, the huge bull home. But I mean, like I said, you just you have to see the pictures. So please go to all the socials. See if you can look at the pictures. Like I said, if you can't go down to the bottom, go to the source. I know this is like the 50 million time I've said it, but just you would just you have to see it to believe it. All right, that is all we have for the news update. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with this week's case.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is soundwriting, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So, He's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real-life female poisoners. So christian's podcast is the best you must add it to your listen list after you listen to this episode make sure you head over to that old gay classic cinema on apple and spotify make sure you follow him on instagram at that old gay classic cinema and he's also on tiktok don't forget tiktok okay i can't wait for you all to listen to that old gay classic cinema and now back to the ivory tower boiler room (laughs)
1: So, I feel like it has been a while since here at True Crime and Academia, we have covered a multi-part case. So, coming back from vacation, I decided, let's do it. So, for the next few weeks, we will be focusing on one of the most famous kidnappings of the 1970s. She is the granddaughter of newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst. And this case is definitely an interesting one. There are some crazy twists and turns. So we are going to cover this case in three parts. So buckle up and get ready because this is the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Patricia Campbell Hearst Shaw was born on February 20th, 1954 in Los Angeles, California, parents Randolph A. Hurst and Catherine Wood Campbell. Patricia is the third of Catherine and Randolph's five daughters. So needless to say, it's a pretty big household. And also a lot of girls. A lot of women. A lot of estrogen flowing around. And I mean, in my household, it was me and two other women and my poor father. So (laughs) I think my dad has... (laughs) Had had to live with three women the majority of his life, most likely. Um, You know, and of course I'm still here, so he's still outnumbered. Um, But yeah, I mean, like I said, at the height of it, you know, with the three of us, it was... (sighs) I'm not, you know, I'm not dissing on my gender. I think women are wonderful, you know. But sometimes, especially I feel like in a family situation, you know, women can be cruel, So, you know, it's like, and it's also like that saying says, you know, you're, you hurt the people you love the most. So, you know, you know, I just, I can't imagine, you know, and especially she seemed to be, like, she's the literal middle child, you know. So, I'm sure she definitely had some... I'm not going to say middle child tendencies, but just like, you know, there are certain things that occur with the second or middle child (laughs) in a family. And I'm not saying that this is with every middle child, but it seems that like middle second child has or at least feels some sort of type of neglect anyway, you know. So I don't know. Maybe she felt like maybe she was overlooked or, you know, overlooked by her parents because of her siblings. I don't know. Again, but, you know, for all I know, maybe she, that you know, the middle child syndrome (laughs) didn't exist for her. And, you know, those circumstances didn't happen. You know, who knows? But as I mentioned, Patricia is the granddaughter of newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst. Now, if you don't know who he is, he is super quick and easy to look up. You will find a slew of information on the man. Good lord since this episode is not about him we're just going to i'm just going to give you the cliff notes so basically like like i said he was a newspaper mogul he you know eventually got rich off of that and became friends with a bunch of celebrities owned a ton of property i i oh man it's on the tip of my tongue and i wanted to look this up before but there is a property that he owned and it had a very famous like name and basically, I mean, it besides the fact that it was huge, like, it's practically an island, you know, he also had exotic animals, like, basically like a zoo, which I don't agree with, you know, I don't care no matter how well, you know, supposedly they're, I, and I just, I don't think it's okay to own exotic animals. That's, that's my opinion, you know, I don't think anyone should own them. I watch Tiger King, and as fascinating it is as it is, and as much as I would love, love, to pet all of and love all of the baby animals, exotic or not, I know that it's not okay. So, like, in any situation when you are, or if you are asked or presented with the opportunity to touch an animal... Sadly, that most likely means that they are in an abusive, unsafe situation. I hate to burst anyone's bubble about that, but that is essentially how I feel about this this place. But the whole moral of, of this <laughs> is that he was stupid rich and basically controlled the whole newspaper industry. And for any movie buffs out there, I know my friend Christian Garcia... From that old gay classic cinema. I know he knows (laughs) this. Um, But yeah, William Randolph Hearst is who Citizen Kane was based off of. Movie buffs, like I said, y'all know about this. Rosebud. So Patricia's father, Randolph, as you might have guessed, was one of William Hearst's or William Randolph Hearst's five sons. I mean, you see, he gave him his middle name as his first name. But he also left his five sons an inheritance. However, though, he apparently left the majority of his wealth to the trustees of his company. And I'm only mentioning this just because while Patricia and her family were considered to be rich, because they were, there's no mistaking that. You know, it's just, had they gotten the whole, like, they just could have been more rich based off of how he would have distributed, excuse me, the inheritance However, though, they weren't fully in the limelight. Still, though, given her status as an heiress to literally one of the biggest newspaper companies in the entire country, if not the world, she was able to attend various private schools in L.A., San Mateo, Crystal Springs, and Monterey, California. She then went on to take classes at Menlo College, but then eventually transferred to the University of California in Berkeley, where she studied art history. As you can see, I mean, her privilege, I mean, as far as access to education, you know, is quite high. You know, not everyone can go to these types of private schools and things. I mean, University of California... Is a very prestigious college, you know. But also, I feel like even you know, I don't get the impression that she didn't take advantage. Excuse me, I hit my mic. um, Didn't take advantage of the educational opportunities. I mean, I it seemed like that she was intelligent, and you know, I haven't seen anything to prove otherwise.
0: LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S T E P H E N dot H E-M-R-I-C-K at GLReview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say.
1: Hey, True Crime and Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners, listen, the holidays are literally right around the corner. And I know that some of you are scrambling to find that gift for that person on your list who is just so difficult to buy for because they have everything. Or you're sitting there in your home and you're realizing that there is this space in your house that just is begging to be decorated, but you don't know what to put there. Well, I'm here to tell you that Mandy Made It has the answers to all of your holiday needs. Mandy Made It makes the best handmade crochet and krikra items I have ever seen. And I mean, literally, she can make anything. The customization options are literally endless. So, go to at Mandy Made It on Instagram and search Mandy Made It on Facebook Slide into her DMs and order your customized holiday gifts and decorations today. That's at Mandy Made It on Instagram. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Once again, search Mandy Made It on Instagram and Facebook. Slide in her DMs and order your gifts or holiday decorations today. At some point in time, and I couldn't find when, but Patricia started seeing a guy named Stephen Weed. Cool last name, sidebar. And the two actually did get engaged. The two lived together in an apartment in Berkeley, and I couldn't find if he was also a student there, but it just seemed like it was just the best place for her to commute to school. On February 4th, 1974, Patricia and Steve were just hanging out in their apartment. Patty was a sophomore at this time. There are some conflicting sources as to the exact time. Some said it was during the night and some said it was during the morning. But at some point on this day, three to five, because again, conflicting sources, three to five individuals entered Patty and Steven's apartment. These individuals beat up Stephen and they captured Patricia. They blindfolded her and threw her into the trunk of a stolen car that the kidnappers had parked outside. It was also stated in one source that one of the neighbors who saw what was going on was also injured for trying to intervene. Now, according to witnesses, a.k.a. the other neighbors, Patricia fought against her kidnappers, but sadly, it was no use. At some point, they stated that they saw Stephen running out of the house, screaming and attempting to chase after the car as it drove off. At this point, though, the other neighbors had to take cover because the perpetrators of the kidnapping were actually firing shots from the car. I mean, I can't even begin to put myself in Stephen's shoes. Like, that must be some of the most helpless and terrifying moments, you know, of of his life, as I'm sure it would have been for me, you know, if I had been in that situation, of course. You know, again, I can only speculate slash imagine. But it also makes me think of a time, and I wasn't even involved or around at the time, um, but there was an incident on my street. It was i mean in some ways thankfully a case of mistaken identity um apparently there had been some sort of like drug dealers in our neighborhood and i guess some people were pissed at that person and shot at a few houses now on my street which was not the right street to begin with um thankfully no one was injured nothing happened you know police of course were called But at the time, I was like a senior in high school, and thankfully, I was already down the shore with some friends, but I just, I remember my mom thinking, like, thank, like, because she said this to me, she was just like, thank God you were down the shore, because at the time that the shooting occurred, like, was the time that normally you would have been, got like, coming home from having hung out with your friends, so... Like, whenever I think or, like, hear about any sort of, like, shooting in the neighborhood, like, my brain just immediately goes there, which is weird because, again, like, I, even though I was not there for it, like, I still feel some sort of fear, you know, I guess because of, because of that what if, you know, what if I hadn't been down the shore? What if, you know, we were, you know, me and my friends were all, home and local and what if (laughs) you know i had come home at that time so you know it's just for me i was just like oh my god that's fucking terrifying you know but anyway three days later the group of individuals revealed themselves in a communique to a berkeley radio station they called themselves the Simbanese liberation army or sla and announced that they were the ones who had kidnapped patricia And were holding her as a, quote, prisoner of war, end quote. They also denounced the, quote, establishment, end quote. Now, the SLA was a small leftist radical group that was formed in 1973 in Berkeley, California, by a man named Donald DeFries. The group was started initially as a collaboration between convicts and prison activists, which I feel like should be, like, innocently enough. Like, I know people here are like, oh, my God, convicts, prison activists. Like, oh, my God, they don't know what's going on. These people are terrible, blah, 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 blah. You know, but we seriously do in this country have a very serious problem when it comes to our prisons and our prison system. And, I mean, n- that's not even getting to the problems with the justice system, you know. Within just the prison system, There are a lot of problems. I mean, in this country, we have for-profit prisons. And if you don't think that's disgusting, then... (sighs) I'm not a specialist, but I would highly... Like, I would just hope that at that point you would seek help. Because clearly there is something wrong with your lack of empathy. I understand certain people commit crimes. They should be able to face their consequences. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But also, you know, I also do think that people should be treated like humans. You know, I don't know. But anyway, this was how this all started. Now, it's leader Donald DeFries. He was actually the only black member of this group. The rest were white middle class men and women. From what I could see, it seems like there was a total of maybe about 8 to 10 members in total at any given time but all of the members adopted Swahili names and got weapons mainly guns prior to Patty's Patricia Hearst's kidnapping the group was also known for the assassination of Marcus Foster and Marcus Foster was the first black man who was the superintendent of schools in Oakland California And this happened, or his assassination, occurred on November 6, 1973. Two of the members of, you know, the SLA were arrested for the murder. Now, the SLA wanted to take things further, of course, because if you're a radical group, of course, you have to keep taking things to the next level, right? Well, they decided they wanted to instigate a full-on guerrilla war against the U.S. government. I don't like to judge, but it was at this point in my research that I felt that maybe the majority of these people were had some sort of mental issue that they needed to work through. Cause I mean, that's that's a suicide mission, just saying. Now, to do this, they needed to start with the kidnapping of Patricia because they knew that she had a powerful and wealthy family. Now, I don't know exactly how they figured out, you know, who she was specifically. Because, again, this was, like, before Internet times. I mean, if it was today, we all know that we could have easily been, like, Google search Patricia Hearst. And, you know, we would have gotten a million sources, as I did during this research— you know, would have come up. But back then, that was not the case. So at some point, they figured out how to track William Randolph Hearst's relatives, and they just so happened to pick her. And they found out that where she was living was close to them because, like I said, her apartment was in Berkeley, California. Now, it was also said that they had found this out, like once they figured out who she was, that they were able to find out her location and address, and other information through the college's registrar. So, I mean, I know that the schools since then have, like, tightened down, but that's how they found her. Even though, like I said, I mean, her family was known. So I guess, you know, again, like I said, lack of technology, her family's famous. Like, it was probably easier just because of that. Now, I sincerely kind of loathe the fact that I am someone who gives credit where credit is due. And I hate to say this, but I feel that the SLA were kind of mm, smart in, you know, their plan with kidnapping uh, Patricia Hearst. And, you know, again, I don't... From a logistics point, I go, okay, that was intelligent. But from a moral and every other type of standpoint, obviously, I do not agree. And by me, uh, or what I mean by the logistics standpoint, I mean, as far as strategy is concerned. She would be the best person to kidnap. A, she is a college student. So for one, she is out, she is enjoying her life, but she is also still technically considered young and quote naive. Not that anyone said that of her, I'm just, you know, putting that in there. Because I feel like that's how most people feel of college students, that they're more naive. And that's not 100% true, you know? But for her, you know... Obviously, though, in this situation where they're trying to – where this is, like, a legitimate, like, radical group, technically terrorist group, you know, they want to make a big impact without necessarily making a huge splash. And by that, I mean because she was the grandchild. They're like, yes, we'll take her because there's limited protection and there's limited people around her who – could actually do something about it. whereas her father Randolph and her grandfather William are obviously surrounded by people all of the time, but not only just surrounded by people all of the time. they're also surrounded by protection or security, which was something I read in my research that her that Patricia's parents felt that their daughters didn't need because again, they didn't think like that this that something like this would happen. You know, I don't fault them for that. You know, again, they had five daughters. You know, but at the same time, like, I don't know. Especially when you're someone who's, like, it seems with them, they tried to keep their children out of the limelight. They tried to keep them out of the press. So I can see how they're probably figuring, oh, well, if no one really knows about them, then why do they need to be protected? You know? Again, I don't think it was like negligence. I just don't think that they thought it was necessary. However, sadly, it was. In addition to the communique from the SLA, the radio station also released the first tape recording of Patricia. And that is where I'm going to leave you guys this week. Next week, we are going to get into way much more depth of this kidnapping and what happened thereafter so please do not forget to comment like subscribe on all of the platforms that you listen to true crime in academia and the ivory tower ivory tower boiler room on and until next time my loves i will see you later
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime in Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime in Academia on Instagram and Twitter. And TikTok too, remember our TikTok, that's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and true crime and academia content. All the video interviews are on our Patreon, all of our bonus episodes are on Patreon, and it just means so much for you to join for $5 a month. You unlock all of our bonus episodes and also it just helps support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much for giving Mary and I a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee. Thanks for the $5. Head to patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes and we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week and have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay. Bye now.